0: Welcome to Holy Smoke, the Spectator's religion podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. I've been reading a fascinating new book called The St. Gallen Mafia, exposing the secret reformist group within the church, by the journalist Julia Maloney. It tells the story of how, over many years, a group of liberal cardinals plotted to install their own man in the Vatican. That man was originally supposed to be Cardinal Carlo Maria Martini, a Jesuit scholar of towering intellect, who was committed to relaxing the Catholic Church's teachings on sexual morality using the instrument of synodality. He was also implacably hostile to the celebration of the traditional Latin Mass and sought to subvert the implementation of Samorum Pontificum. If that sounds familiar, it's not a coincidence because after Cardinal Martini became ill and then died in 2012, his fellow Liberal Cardinals, who called themselves the St Gallen Mafia, after the place in Switzerland where they met once a year, settled on a far less intellectually distinguished Jesuit, Cardinal Jorge Maria Bergoglio, as their candidate for Pope. Not only did they secure his election in 2013, but one of them, the late Cardinal Cormac Murphy O'Connor of Westminster, couldn't resist boasting about it. All of this is a matter of public record, and it should be said that this is the sort of plotting that takes place before any conclave. What I found fascinating about Julia Maloney's very well-written book is her very credible suggestion that Cardinal Martini, who is in some ways close to his ideological opponent, Benedict XVI, may have put significant pressure on Benedict to resign, thus clearing the way for Bergoglio. The mystery, as I see it, is that the St. Gallen Mafia should have chosen someone as opportunistic, as ideologically changeable, as the Cardinal Archbishop of Buenos Aires. But, as Maloney points out, in the end they got what they wanted, albeit posthumously in some cases. That is, synodality, a new and quite possibly calculated confusion on such hot-button issues as communion for divorced and remarried Catholics and homosexuality, and, just this year, a messy but savage assault on Catholics who prefer the ancient form of the Roman Rite. All of these ambitions long predate the arrival of Jorge Bergoglio in the College of Cardinals. I've been talking to Julia Maloney, and I began by asking her to tell me about the early days of the St. Gallen Mafia a term actually coined by one of its members, the late Cardinal de Niels of Belgium, whose career appeared to have ended in fully justified disgrace after his involvement in a sex scandal, but which was mysteriously resurrected, his own word again, after his friend and protégé became Pope Francis. So, exactly when did all this begin?
1: It goes back to the mid-1990s. Around 1996 was the first time that they started meeting and they were a high-ranking group of churchmen who would secretly meet at or near St. Gallen, Switzerland. Um, usually they had an annual meeting and usually according to Daniel's biography, it was in January. And then they had like annual presentations that a certain person would give um, each year. The center of gravity for this group is really Cardinal Martini. And Cardinal Martini, his life follows a kind of three-act structure. And around this point, he is called the next pope in the media because they, they wanted him, of course, to be the liberal successor to Pope John Paul II. It's widely said that the St. Gallen Mafia actually did want Martini as pope in the beginning. But then, of course, he came down with Parkinson's disease. By the time of the 2005 conclave, he could no longer be pope. He even carried a cane at the proceedings to signal that he was not really eligible to be pope. So he kind of moves into the second act, and that's where he is dubbed by the media as a kind of anti-pope to Joseph Bratzinger, Pope Benedict XVI. There were some major moves that that Martini would do after Summorum Pontificum came out, I believe just within a couple of weeks, Martini gave an interview explaining how he would never say the traditional Latin Mass because he was opposed to it in principle. So that's just one example of the, the kind of salvo that he issued against Benedict. And then the third act, the most intriguing act, is where he becomes the antipope, the A-N-T-E, kind of antecedent, precursor, preparer for a holy father. We know now that that holy father was Pope Francis Bergoglio.
0: So there's a group of cardinals belonging to this self-described mafia, one of whom was the English Cardinal Cormac Murphy O'Connor, whom I knew, who always struck me as a charming but very intellectually lightweight figure, fairly liberal in his views, but uh, he certainly made absolutely no impact whatsoever as, as Cardinal Archbishop of Westminster. But Cormac really did like to claim that he was instrumental in securing the election of Bergoglio as Pope in 2013. But what your book suggests, and I find absolutely fascinating, is that Cardinal Martini the aging ailing Cardinal Martini kind of guessed that Pope Benedict was going to resign and indeed may even have encouraged him to do so.
1: That is a, a really important piece of the puzzle I think that our discourse has to to kind of incorporate because Martini was an anti-pope against Benedict but at the same time there's this complicated layer because the two of them had a sort of rapport. They esteemed each other's intellectual abilities. Martini was a brilliant biblical scholar before he was plucked away from his studies to become the Archbishop of Milan by Pope John Paul II. And, you know, Ratzinger, of course, his intellectual capabilities are well known. And the two of them, they had different moments where they would write forewords to each other's books or you know, other, other congratulatory um, pieces of writing for each other. Shortly before Martini delivered a kind of very pointed salvo against the church's teachings on bioethics, Pope Benedict was praising him in, in front of a group of young people. So what, what was fascinating to me is that they had these meetings and Martini would boast of these meetings that they had. So um, towards the end, I believe in April 2011, they had a meeting and I go into it in the book and then in April of 2012, and I verified this in two different public sources that say this. Martini met with bishop friends in an area of Switzerland close to the border of Germany. So was the St. Gallen Mafia meeting with Martini, you know, years after they allegedly broke up in 2006? It's possible. But he was also saying to a confidant, and this is recorded by Sandro Magister, one of the foremost Vaticanists. He was saying to this confidant that he hoped Benedict would resign soon. This was his language, not not just that he would resign, but that he would resign soon, as if he knew something that other people didn't know, and this was in 2012. And my colleague, um, Micah Hickson, pointed out to me that in 2012, Cardinal Casper... Walter Casper of the Mafia was speaking about a southerly wind that was rising and then this was later interpreted as a reference to Bergoglio by Bergoglio's allies so that there are so many eerie coincidences here that um, really really get you wondering about how much these people you know knew about Benedict's mind knew about his plan and of course how much Martini encouraged him. Um, the, maybe the last piece of the puzzle is in June of 2012, according to Martini's own confessor, Martini met with Benedict for the last time and did tell him to resign.
0: Some commentators would say, look, there really is nothing new in groups of cardinals meeting to discuss who should be the next pope and deciding on a candidate. In fact, there probably has never been a conclave in which something like that hasn't happened. So, so to what extent are the St. Gallo Mafia's conversations something newsworthy in themselves?
1: Yeah, that, that's a wonderful question. Um, I think the fact that they were meeting starting in 1996 and they specifically postured themselves as an anti-Ratzinger group, according to Daniel's biography, it, it wasn't really an idea that held them together. It was a person and it was Joseph Ratzinger, and it was a posture of war. So they were plotting for for years. The force that united them was their antipathy towards Ratzinger. They had many dreams that they brought to the table because we know from Daniil's biography that in 1999, Martini actually talked about his dream of a new council, And then we know that Daniil's at that meeting was a little bit pragmatic about it, a little bit skeptical that it could be pulled off. And then later that year, Martini gave a speech. And there he was more vague about whether he wanted a council or not. And we can look back at it and see he was basically describing perpetual synodality, which is exactly what we got with Pope Francis. So... I think that they were identifying Bergoglio as a wonderful candidate as early as, you know, the early 2000s. I think he was on their radar in 2001, according to Denails's biography, but also according to Nicholas Diat, when Silvestrini, Cardinal Achilles Silvestrini, came into the group replacing Martini in 2003... Silvestrini actually talked to Bergoglio or tried to convince Bergoglio to lead the anti-Ratzinger forces. And then the fact that they, you know, they went underground in many ways and then re-emerged for the 2013 conclave after this eerie talk about Pope Benedict resigning. I think it behooves us to ask many questions about what exactly was going on here.
0: I don't find it particularly surprising, as I said, that groups of cardinals should be meeting over a period of years to further a particular agenda and to pick a candidate and indeed to change candidates when their man became too old and ill. But what I do find fascinating is their choice of Cardinal Bergoglio as their candidate. Because years earlier, his fellow Jesuit Martini had barely been on speaking terms with him because he saw Jorge Bergoglio as a conservative or perhaps an opportunist, somebody who'd introduced rather conservative disciplines when he was running the Jesuits in Argentina, somebody who was rumoured to have had a warm relationship with the right-wing government there. So there was initially no love lost between Bergoglio and Martini, but Over the years, it does seem as if Bergoglio's message began to converge with that of Martini, which you describe as, well, his priorities as, first, a new approach towards the divorce, second, a new approach to the appointment of bishops, then priestly celibacy and the role of the laity, and then the relationship between politics and the hierarchy, all of which sounds a lot like this pontificate. But what do you think was going on? What do you think motivated Boglio to change his ideological stance from somebody who was very much seen as John Paul II's man in the Latin American church to somebody who was identified as the leading opponent to John Paul II's chosen successor, Ratzinger? How much opportunism was involved?
1: Yeah, I, I think that Henry Sear, of course, the author of The Dictator Pope, gives a really compelling analysis when he says that Bergoglio, at some point, he signaled that he was a fellow traveler despite his conservative orientation in the beginning. And um, it, it appears from D'Neill's biography. That when he was making those signals, let, let's say around 2001, there was that synod on collegiality and Bergoglio became one of the synod officials. He evidently impressed Daniil's and th- they had mutual esteem for each other because they, they felt that both of them understood and had a similar position on synodality and collegiality. I think that these kinds of signals were very important, and I also think that the, the ambiguity of Bergoglio as a person could be weaponized by them because Bergoglio, this was, the early 2000s was the same time that Sandro Magister was talking about conservatives begging Bergoglio to stay in Rome to, to try to potentially become Pope one day. So Bergoglio was just this, you know, empty symbol. You, you could project what you wanted to onto him. And in many ways, that has come to his aid in this pontificate because people are able to say, oh, I can do a hermeneutic of continuity with what he does. And I'm not particularly exercised over what's, what's going on in this papacy. Uh, other people look at him and, and see something more ominous. One last thing I would add is I have a whole chapter called Patience, and I talk about Yves Congar, the um, Vatican II figure who had a book on true and false reform in the church. And according to Austin Ivory, who was the former spokesman for Murphy O'Connor, this figure was very important to Bergoglio. Congar talks a lot about patience, time, delay not creating a schism but rather working very slowly within an institution to change it and i think that pope francis's time is greater than space is is exactly this principle objectively speaking the way that he has tackled the issue of changing the church in his own vision it's it's quite brilliant in many ways um you know even if one opposes it but i think that at some point martini came to see maybe that he he could appreciate something in Bergoglio. There was something new or something that developed in him that could be useful to this group.
0: Well, you describe Francis's methods of changing the church as quite brilliant, but to me, they look like a tremendous mess. Now, admittedly, Francis once said that his ambition was to make a mess, but they don't necessarily look like a planned mess. There's been a succession of synods, all of which create division and don't arrive at very firm conclusions. It seems to me that Francis quite often loses control of the narrative and is sometimes so preoccupied with, A, settling scores with his enemies, and B, protecting some of the intensely corrupt cardinals and archbishops who are his allies, that any coherent reform narrative is just sidelined.
1: Yeah, that's a really important point. I'm, I'm very glad you made that because, you know, the book with its zooming in on the St. Gallen group and how their legacy plays out in this pontificate, there's so much that, that kind of can't be said in the scope of that. We, we can't talk very much about the sexual abuse scandals. We can talk about Daniel's. But there are so many other characters that...
0: If we could just remind people that Daniil's attempted to cover up incestuous child abuse, he was quite rightly disgraced, and then he was rehabilitated, resurrected, as he put it himself, by Francis, Mm -hmm. who appreciated his support. Likewise, Cardinal McCarrick had been sent into a sort of internal exile by Benedict, who knew of his reputation, He was probably instrumental in securing quite a few votes for Bergoglio in the conclave. He was certainly an ally of the St. Gallen Mafia, and he too was rehabilitated. Meanwhile, Francis has been busy protecting the reputations, or at least trying to protect from the consequences of their crimes. Various senior churchmen, who I've mentioned before on other episodes of Holy Smoke. It's all very unsavoury.
1: Yeah, of course. And, you know, as we're talking about the resurrection of Daniil's, it's one of the eeriest parts of this story. There's this line from the novelist William Faulkner where he says, the past is never dead. It is not even past. And the second half of of this book, which is talking about the Francis pontificate, in a lot of ways it's talking about ghosts and resurrections because there is, of course, the figure of Daniil's that we just mentioned, and he literally did see this as a resurrection experience, and he was giving a sermon, and he was referring to his time from the sexual abuse scandals that you alluded to earlier. Um, It was a Good Friday for him, but he left this period of darkness because Easter came, because Pope Francis came. Literally, he's adopting and, and kind of hijacking this, this imagery of Easter and resurrection to, to describe his own rehabilitation. And um, Martini, of course, Martini is dead, but he's quoted sometimes by, by Pope Francis. You know, when you were describing kind of the chaos going through this, you know, another image we might use for this pontificate might be, you know, it's, it's just this corridor and there are a bunch of different, very questionable ghosts kind of haunting it in different ways. We're not necessarily getting, getting a reform, even a liberal reform. We're, we're getting the burdensomeness of the past.
0: That certainly makes sense to me because I often ask myself what Pope Francis actually believes, whether he actually likes the Catholic Church. Whether he really does have a, a vision for the Catholic Church or whether fundamentally he's a sort of Latin American clerical politician, and a, I think a very unscrupulous one at that, if you look at some of the people he's rehabilitated or tried to rehabilitate, and if you look at the savagery and I think dishonesty of some of the things he's done, for example, Traditionis Custodis, his shocking tearing up of Benedict's vision of a of a hermeneutic of continuity. That seems to have been motivated at least as much by malice, anger and score settling as by liturgical contemplation. And it's been interesting to note that bishops who weren't particularly sympathetic to the Old Mass have been very slow to implement it because I think they just suspect the Pope's motives and dislike the cruelty inherent in the document.
1: Yeah, definitely. I, I think that this this element of, you know, making things personal, it's interesting. I, I didn't put this in the book, but, well, there is kind of a section where I have kind of the backstory of Bergoglio, and I talk a little bit about the time when he was young and he had dreams, you know, being, being a Jesuit, and he he certainly presents himself as being very idealistic, very sincere. I'm not sure we have to doubt that he that he at some point, you know, did have these grandiose idealistic dreams. He was giving an interview, I think, in the book, God is Young. And he was talking about how life would disappoint him in some of his dreams, or people would write him off. And then he says, but I'm still here. And of course, he says as well, he's Pope. So, you know, I turned out okay, or everything turned out okay. So there's There seems to me to be this real psychological kind of insecurity. You know, I I don't want to psychoanalyze everything here, but there does seem to me to be this personal need to show people that he is in power, he's still here, he's still in control. And then, as you've alluded to, that can morph into, you know, vindictiveness in different points. Um, I, I think Traditionis Custodis is absolutely devastating. And it came out after I had already finished revising this book. And I actually, um, I often write for the, the outlet 1 Peter 5. And I did a piece on the St. Gallen Mafia and the Latin Mass. And it felt to me kind of like an afterword to the book. And um, I just went through it, you know, and looked at again kind of the haphazard maneuvers that they had done, that the mafia had done to try to resist Benedict and some more pontificum, including Murphy O'Connor. Murphy, um, O'Con-
0: Murphy O'Connor's record was absolutely atrocious and his henchman in attempting to subvert the Pope's wishes was the appalling Archbishop Arthur Roach. I very much fear he's going to be made a cardinal now that he's prefect of the Congregation for Divine Worship. They played every trick in the book to try and yes. stop the rehabilitation or the reintroduction of the old mass.
1: Yes, that kind of trickery, that kind of maneuvering there. It's the prelude to what we have later. One image that I use in the book is Chekhov's gun. And, you know, it's the principle in drama, of course, that if you have a, a gun lying in a, on the mantelpiece yeah. in, in, let's say, act one, it needs to go off in act two. And... The eerie thing to me was, you know, if you phrase it another way, if a gun is going off in act three, a hand was putting it in place in act one. And when Traditionis Custodis went off, I said, we have to find the backstory and, and what the St. Gallen connection is. And sure enough, you know, there, there's Murphy O'Connor, there's Roach, there's Martini, different figures, they're fiddling with some weapon at the weapon at the mantelpiece in Act 1. I, th- I think that th- there, there was something set in motion, even if it looked like they weren't really getting where they needed to go um, in the beginning.
0: And finally, after their deaths in some cases, Francis pulled the trigger... The document, Traditiones Casodas, is is crude and based on a mysterious survey which may not say what the Vatican is implying that it says. I think the whole thing stinks. You talked about Francis's insecurity. I think one reason for that is that by Jesuit standards, he's not particularly distinguished intellectually. Martini and Caspar, not a Jesuit, but were, were great scholars, and nobody doubted their intellectual distinction. Francis, even by the standards of an ordinary Jesuit priest is not is, he's quite cultivated in when it comes to uh, appreciation of the arts and literature. But theologically he comes across mm. as an opportunistic amateur, and I'm a little bit surprised that somebody as distinguished as Martini, somebody as distinguished as Casper I don't think Mafia connor is at all distinguished, but that those two should have endorsed Bergoglio to be Pope. Was it just his pliability?
1: I, I think that Martini was a dreamer. I think that Casper was a dreamer in many ways. They were very intellectual. They were abstract. They needed someone who understood praxis. They needed someone who understood how to pull the trigger on Chekhov's gun, how to make a mess, how to actually start incarnating some of these dreams. So I I think the historian Roberto de Mattei says that the true revolutionary is Francis, even more than, say, Karl Rahner, because Rahner was, of course, the towering mind of the Vatican II generation. And, you know, he had many different things that he wanted to do to the church to change it. But he was, again, abstract. He was abstruse. It's someone like Bergoglio who understands how to actually get it done in praxis. And in in a way, that makes him the true revolutionary.
0: Well, I fear for the church generally because I think the net effect of the Bergoglio pontificate has been to sort of break the church. What do you think?
1: I think it's been absolutely devastating in, in many different ways. I like to just disclose to people that when this pontificate started, for three years, I, I was its, its biggest fan. I just absolutely adored Pope Francis's thought. I defended everything. And this was even when the Synod on the Family was happening. I was still completely immersed in a honeymoon period with this pontificate. And um, when Amoris Laetitia came out... That was the turning point for me where I started reading critically about what was going on and investigating the backstory of the pontificate, which of course led to this book. So I I look at it and I see, on the one hand, I can see how certain people, if you don't read deeply into this pontificate, you might get swept away with some of the imagery and some of the positive aspects of it. Um, I can see that because I live that. And at the same time, um, as someone who's who's really looked into this St. Gallen Mafia group, I just think that we're on a, a very worrisome trajectory. And even just bracketing the question of where we go from here, even just today, you know, the, the state of it is, is definitely very, very worrisome.
0: That was Julia Maloney, author of The St Gallen Mafia Exposing the Secret Reformist Group Within the Church, published by Tan Books. I strongly recommend that you read it. I'd say about it what I say of The Dictator Pope by Henry Sear. You may pick it up thinking you're about to read a conspiracy theory and you'll be confronted instead by facts that are being suppressed by much of the Catholic media and the Vatican press corps. If you want to understand this pontificate, then you need to be fully acquainted with them.